Let's make today the day you get one step closer to becoming the parent you've always wanted to be and the parent your children deserve. Welcome to Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids. I am your host, Erin Taylor, and I have wanted to help parents and children literally since I was 11 years old. I created this podcast to help you make a stronger, healthier, deeper connection to your child, to understand the inevitable challenges a little better, and learn some new ways to navigate them when they occur. Thank you for spending some time with me. Now let's get this show started. Hello and welcome to episode 572. On today's episode, I share an interview that Barb Hudson did with me for her Beyond the Behavior Summit. I hope you enjoy it. Hi guys! It's Barb Hudson, host of Beyond the Behavior event, and I am so glad that you're here, and I hope that you are getting as much out of this event as I am. I know that with each speaker that I talk to, my parenting perspective has shifted just a little bit, and so I just hope that you're getting as much out of it as I am. I am with Erin Taylor today. She is a PCI certified parent coach. She's a motivational speaker, an author. She's also the host of the Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids podcasts. She's also a mother of four. Erin, welcome. Thank you, Barbara. It's such a pleasure to be here. So our topic today is behavior. And my first question for you is what advice would you have for parents that are just struggling with behaviors at home? I think the first thing I would say is to remind parents that behavior issues are common and super normal. Right. And they can be really frustrating and hard to figure out how to deal with them. So all of that, that, that you're probably feeling as a parent, it's all totally normal. Yeah. And what, um, what specific, like when you look at, at behavior and, um, And how can parents look at it a little bit differently? Well, I have, I teach parents that behavior is like an iceberg and I'll, I'll kind of explain it and then everyone can download their own copy of it if they would like. I have the iceberg hanging in my kitchen where it's been for years because I find it to be such a powerful, easy way to kind of get myself on track if I start feeling triggered or angry or frustrated with my kids. And so the way I explain behavior is that we typically see the behavior and then we focus on the behavior. And historically, I think as parents, we've been taught and told that we should correct stop or control the behavior. If your child is acting out, it looks bad on you as a parent, you're not doing your job, so your child needs to behave. Mm -hmm. I think that's the traditional way that we've ever thought about parenting, right? 
a parent should be in control and their kids should be behaving if they're good parents. But that is very, very old, very outdated and very archaic in my opinion. Okay. The way I encourage parents to see behavior is to see it as a messenger. So it's not the thing to focus on as the thing that you're trying to stop or control. It's showing up because it's trying to alert you that your child has an unmet need under the surface. And so the reason I use this concept of an iceberg is that if you imagine a cross section of an iceberg, there's a little tiny bit that you see above the surface, but then in the deep dark water, there's this huge chunk that you can't even see. And so that little bit of behavior on the top or that little chunk of ice on the top, that's the behavior. That's the lying, the crying, whining, disrespect, talking back, not doing their chores, fighting with siblings. It's the broad range of what I call undesirable behaviors. But those behaviors have shown up to say, hey, look at me over here. I need help. I'm struggling with something. Can you help me? And so if you see, if you can learn to see behavior that way, it's much easier to not get triggered by it and to, and of course this takes practice, but to not get triggered by it and to, instead of wanting to, like our instinct is, it's an undesirable behavior. We want it to stop. We just want to control it, stop it, punish it, threaten it away. We just want it to end. But if we can rather see it as a, as a messenger and say, hmm, my child's having a tantrum right now. What could be going on? What unmet need is going on that I might be able to help with? My child is talking back to me and being extremely rude. What could be going on to cause that rude behavior? What's it trying to tell me? And so some of the things that could be going on, of course, there are a wide variety of possible things. You know, it's unlimited. What could be bothering our child? But some of them are easier to spot, and they're what I would call physical things. Like, let's imagine a toddler having a tantrum. The first things you would want to ask yourself are, is my child hungry, tired? Is it past their nap time? Have they been overstimulated today and they just need quiet? Have they not burned off enough energy and they need to go run around and play some? Those are the easier ones to spot. And because they're more physical in nature. But then you have the emotional ones that are a little more nuanced and subtle, right? So did my child, is my child feeling capable? Are they feeling ignored? Did someone betray them? Did they get in a fight with their friend at school? Do they feel unworthy? Do they feel invaluable? There are many, many different things. Are they worried about an upcoming test? Are they sad about something? It could be a wide variety of things. And those take a little more detective work to see if you can uncover the root cause. But the really cool thing about seeing behavior in this way and, and approaching it from this perspective is that if you can figure out the unmet need and you can help your child and meet that need for them, a lot of times the behavior either diminishes or disappears entirely 
because it's no longer has a purpose. It's no longer has a need that it's trying to alert you to. So it just goes away and it goes away without the need for punishments and threats and all this kind of stuff that we resort to as parents because we don't understand the real reason why behavior is what it is. So if you think back to the toddler who's having a tantrum, let's say it's a simple, simple thing. Okay. You've been running errands all day. They usually eat lunch around noon and it's 1.30. They haven't had lunch yet. They're probably hungry. So if you get food in their system, they're not going to have a tantrum anymore because their blood sugar will normalize, their belly won't be growling anymore, and then they'll come back to the person that they normally are. Right. And you don't have to put them on timeout. You don't have to scold them. You don't have to do anything. You just have to feed them in that case. Right. Do you find that that's a good place to start? Like your basic needs, food, water, sleep, nutrition. Is that, the, Absolutely. Is that the best place to start before you dive into like the emotional triggers? I think that's the easiest place because those are kind of easy to check, right? Maybe your child is cold. Maybe your child is hot. I know for me, I tend to, I like to have the windows open. So when it starts getting hot in the summertime, I push it as long as I can get away with it before I put the air conditioner on because I love the fresh air and the breeze blowing in the window and everything. But my kids, all of them hate being hot. So, you know, as soon as it's like 73, they're begging me to turn on the air, but I can't justify it at 73. So it'll start creeping up to like a little more humid, a little hotter. And then suddenly I notice everyone around me is biting my head off. You know, I ask them a question and they snarl at me. And then suddenly I realize, oh, right. I pushed it too far. Okay. I'll put the air on. I put the air condition on and within an hour, everybody's back to being a regular person again. That is so. <laughs> so the physical things are easier and they're the easiest place because you can kind of weed them out, check them off one by one pretty quickly, I think. Right. And then what advice would you have in diving into like those emotional things? Like I, I know I have my oldest son, like he wears his heart on his sleeve and he's 12 and he's just like, he's, he's out there. He, if he thinks it, he says it. My younger son is um, a little bit more reserved. He holds his heart a little bit closer to his chest. Um, he's a lot like his dad. And, um, and sometimes it's hard for me to get in. And what advice would you have for that? Well, that's, that's a good example because some kids are just naturally more reserved. Some kids are more out there with their emotions and more expressive, less uh, guarded. And I think, I think a gentler approach with a more guarded, reserved child is a good idea. Um, I have a child of, of my 13-year-old son. He's what we like to call spicy. So he is very gregarious. He's got a fantastic sense of humor. He's very expressive. And, you know, he's going to be the person who's the storyteller in a room and all that kind of stuff. And he, he kind of commands attention when he walks in a room. But as a result of that, sometimes without him even realizing it, you'll ask him a question and he'll 
the response he gives you is like, it's, it's a huge response. It's a loud response. And so he's quite opposite of your younger son. And so when he comes at us with a, you know, we're at like a four and he comes at us with a seven or an eight, then we just kind of, we've learned the language. We've developed the language with him to kind of say, whoa, 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 whoa. I just asked you a question and you're bringing a lot of stuff at me right now. And then that kind of, unless there's really something deeper that's really bothering him, sometimes that's enough for him to go, oh, you know, and snap out of it and then start speaking in an indoor voice instead of an outdoor voice. And, and so that kind of works for him with a bigger personality and, with a child who's more reserved, I think it takes a gentler approach, maybe sitting quietly with them and just saying, hey, you know, I noticed you've been really quiet lately or you didn't really want to, you know, play a game after dinner tonight. Is, is anything bothering you? What's going on? You know, just like a very gentle, exploratory, curiosity-filled question that's kind of invitational in nature um, to hopefully kind of create that like soft space and that soft invitation to allow them to feel comfortable sharing if, if they're ready to, or if they even know, you know, sometimes something's bothering them. They don't even know what it is. Yeah. How would you guide a a child with um, that maybe doesn't understand um, their own emotions and um, and teaching them about like being in touch with, with that part of themselves. I think teaching kids emotional awareness and emotional intelligence can start at a very young age. You know, when they're toddlers, mm-hmm. if, the, if something happens, if they're building, you know, trying to stack up blocks because that's a developmental milestone, right? Before they can do it, they can't do it. And they try and they fail and it falls down and they get frustrated or they cry or they throw the block across the room because it didn't do what they were trying to make it do. And so even at such a young age, before they really have a bigger vocabulary, you can just kind of make statements. You know, you can say, oh, you're really frustrated because your block fell down when you try to stack it. So really trying to give them the language of what the labels of the emotions are and then try to help them start to learn at a very young age, you know, that you're frustrated. You look frustrated right now. You look sad right now. You're, you're, you're angry because your sister wouldn't share the toy with you. Just trying to give them some words to start to associate what they're feeling inside with what that word is. And that's something you can do when they're really young. But if your kids are older and you didn't think to do that when they were young, I think you just had that kind of a conversation, but at a developmentally appropriate higher level where you just might sit down and talk with them and say, you know, I noticed that when we had that conversation, you teared up really easily. Did something about that upset you or make you sad or make you feel bad in some way? And just try to, you know, continually try to link 
the label of the emotion with the feeling that you think you're observing in them. And you might be totally off base, right? It might be you had a conversation and they teared up and you noticed it and you thought it made them sad. Actually, it made them so angry that their response, their reaction was tears. You know, who knows what it is, but I mean, you could be accurate or you could be inaccurate, but just having those conversations and starting to talk about the emotions and how you're observing how they're showing up, what you see in them and see if it fits what they think they're might be feeling inside. Sure. Sure. That's great. Um, so if a parent is struggling, I'm going to change topics a little bit. So tantruming, um, when parents, you know, every child throws a tantrum and, um, and what advice would you give to parents who are struggling with that right now? You know, it's funny. My kids are all older. They're all teenagers now. And now that I'm out of that tantrum phase, well, the toddler tantrums, teenagers still have tantrums. <laughs> Right. But now that I'm out of the toddler tantrums, when I'm out in public and I see a child throw a young child throwing a tantrum, I try desperately to like with my eyes, just look at the parent and say, Oh, I feel you. I'm giving you so much love and support and you can do this. You can do this. I feel so bad for them because I know how frustrating it is. It's, it's triggering. It's embarrassing. Maybe if you're in public it's really, really hard. And so what sometimes you tend to see parents do is they want to, like I was saying before, they just want to stop the behavior. You know, it's uncomfortable for them or they're embarrassed because they're in public or something. And they might resort to yelling at the child, scolding the child, uh, t- maybe they were going to get the child a toy at the store and now they're taking the toy away because they're angry that the child's having a tantrum or maybe their child is having a tantrum. They want to stop it. So they're going to give the child a, a piece of candy or something to suit, pacify them to stop it. But when the effort or when the desire is to just stop the behavior already, stop the tantrum, that's where we kind of go off base because we might be able to stop the tantrum in the moment but we haven't really figured out what the what was causing the tantrum, why the tantrum was showing up, what the problem is that our child needs help with. So, and a lot of times with toddlers, sometimes they just have big emotions that they don't understand. They don't have words for them. And so sometimes they just have to get it out. Like that energy is just building and building and it's like bigger than their little bodies can contain. And they just have to cry it out, stomp it out, pound it out, whatever they have to do. They just have to get it, get that energy released out of their little tiny bodies. And so I think it's important to let the child have the tantrum because you you have to let them get it out. If they're boiling up with it, you have to let them get it out. If you're in, let's say in a store, you might need to remove your child from the store. So you might need to walk back to the parking lot, walk back to the car, something like that, so that they can do it in a space that's not disturbing everyone around them, that's not putting them in a dangerous situation. You know, you don't necessarily want them rolling all over the floor in a store. It's dirty, who knows? So uh, you have to make sure you give them the space, the, the space and the opportunity to let it out, 
but also in a safe way. I remember when my spicy 13-year-old was a toddler, I was going into the grocery store and he decided he was going to have himself a rip-roaring tantrum on the floor. And I don't even remember what it was for. I think he might have wanted a cart or something, but I just had to get one thing. And he didn't like that we weren't getting a cart. And he threw himself on the ground, literally in the middle of the doorway where the doors automatically close and open. He just plopped himself right down there and started screaming his head off. And because that's obviously not a safe place for him to be, and he's blocking the doorway and the doors are going to close on him. I just kind of scooped him up under the arms and I moved him to the side of the, it was like the foyer. So it was still kind of inside. It was the foyer of the grocery store. I moved him off to the side. So he wasn't near the door. He wasn't in the doorway. He wasn't going to be disturbing. Well, disturbing, I don't know, but <laughs> with his crying, but you know, he wasn't at risk of someone bumping into him with their cart or something like that. And he just carried on like a fool for a couple of minutes until he got the frustration out and then we were able to move on. But I remember uh, an older gentleman walked, was coming into the grocery store when he, when he was sitting on the floor having tantrum. And the man just looked at me and said, you're doing a good job, mom. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. He was my third child. So I already had the experience of dealing with the tantrums. But if that was my first child... I would have desperately needed that comment, that kind comment that that man made to me. And I just thought it was so sweet that he offered that support on his way into the store. Yeah, that was so sweet. I had a similar experience. My boys were running off in the store and I, I, I don't chase kids. And I'm like, stop, come here. And I didn't like, and they turned around and came. And, and like in that moment, I'm like, what are you guys doing? You guys are for me. And, um, and so he came and, and, and the same, same older guy walked by. He's like, mama, that's the best piece of parenting I've seen all day. And I was just like that, like, even now, like that warms my heart that he took the time to stop and say that. Um, my youngest, I remember his best tantrum was we were, we were done at an activity and it was time to transition. And um, and I gave him a warning. I, I did all of the things and he wanted to do it himself. And I'm like, okay, you can do it yourself. And, you know, and we waited and we waited and, you know, he threw a tantrum all the way to the door, all the way to the car, all the way home, all the way to bed. And then he woke up mad. <laughs> and wow. I was like, okay, you know, I get to love you through this. And that was like, and I re and then I realized that, oh, you know what? I'm pushing his nap time a little bit further than than I should have. And, um, and so that was a real big learning experience for me. And I'm like, you know what? It's just part of of the the deal when we sign up for parents. Mm -hmm. And true. it can be so overwhelming at times you know, to, to figure out all of the things, what advice do you have for parents who are going through like overwhelming situations? Ooh. And overwhelming situations could be a whole gamut of things, right? It can be overwhelming with what your child, how your child is behaving, but it can be overwhelming, especially in, in the, 
in the year that we're living in, there's so many overwhelming things, so many reasons that we could be overwhelmed, so many causes. And I think one of the most important things, you've probably heard this a million times before, you have to put your own oxygen mask on before you put it theirs on. It is so important and so commonly forgotten and ignored that we need to take care of ourselves first. That can be nearly impossible. It can feel nearly impossible, but I don't believe it's ever impossible. And what I encourage parents to do who are the most overwhelmed, maybe they're working two jobs. Maybe they have a sick family member at home. Maybe everyone's got the virus. Maybe their toddlers running around like a wild person. But everyone has one minute, just one minute, 60 seconds. Even if that's all you can give yourself, if you can give yourself 60 seconds, excuse yourself to go to the bathroom sit quietly in the bathroom and just breathe deeply. That's the easiest thing you can do. Your breath is with you wherever you are. It's always there as long as you're alive. So you've always got it and you can turn to it whenever you need to. There's something so soothing about just taking a couple of big, deep cleansing breaths. And it has a physiological uh, connection. It really does help us through our vagus nerve. When our when our body senses that we're breathing slowly and deeply, it sends the message through our vagus nerve to the brain that everything is calm. There's no danger. We can settle down. But when we're stressed and triggered and running and anxious and too busy and overwhelmed with how our child is acting and all the other things. We tend to breathe fast and shallow. And that fast, shallow breathing sends the message to our brain, oh, like in the caveman days, there's a saber-toothed tiger and it's going to come eat you. So we're constantly in this state of fight, flight, or freeze, and we're just agitated all the time. So one of the very fastest, easiest things you can do is just take a couple of deep breaths. And then if you've got the luxury of more time and ability, uh, you know, a support or what have you, making sure you try to sleep right, make good food choices, move your body, get some exercise, find ways to reduce your stress, enjoy, make sure you're doing things that you enjoy as a human so that you're not just being a parent 24-7. Yeah. That's great. Um, I love, and what I love about the one minute, like you can do that so many times throughout the day. I'm just constantly, you know, <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. That's, and that's great. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll shut my door in my, in my bedroom and I'll turn on meditation music and mm. set a five minute timer. I'll tell my boys, just give me five minutes. And I just lay on my bed and do it. And it's amazing how just that five minutes of a blank slate, you know, clean energy, then I'm able to like come back and I'm a new person really. Mm-hmm. And it has just recalibrated and reset my internal stuff. And it just, it helps the evening go like, that's kind of my transition from work, like at home work mm. to, to parenting. It's beautiful. A little bit of transition time. And, and, and that has worked really well. That's a really great idea. I love that. Thank you. Um, 
So I was looking on your podcast and you had um, something uh, and it was a title about natural consequences. And um, can you tell parents like good strategies for incorporating natural consequences into their everyday, you know, discipline and behavior strategies? That could be a whole conversation. I know, right? In and of itself. But it is very important that the consequence is a natural effect or outcome of the thing that the child chose to do. So a natural consequence would be if we stay up too late on a school night, when we get up the next day, we're probably going to be tired. That's a natural consequence. And so if our child stays up too late and they have to get up for school, then the punishment, quote unquote, is going to be that they have to figure out how to stay awake through their school day. That's going to probably be painful. And that is probably enough of a situation for them to have to figure out. They're going to have to suffer through being tired all day. I know I remember doing it when I was a kid, when I pushed my bedtime too late. In college, certainly. You know, we all do that, I think. So a natural consequence is something that naturally occurs as a result of the choice that they made. If they, and it could be a good natural consequence too, right? If they choose to study a little bit extra for their tests, they're probably going to get a better grade. So the natural consequence of that, choosing to study more, is that they get a better grade. If they forgot to study, they forgot they were having a test or they chose not to, they're probably going to get a worse grade. And that would be a natural consequence of it. But if your child doesn't study for their test and they get a bad grade, and then you say, you didn't study and you got a bad grade, I'm taking away your phone for a week. Well, the, the phone has nothing to do with the tests or the studying. It's, it's not natural. It's, there's no connection. Now, perhaps if the child chose not to study because they played on their phone until bedtime and they took their studying time to play on the phone, then it might make sense for you to say, well, you know what? You spent all your studying time playing on the phone, so it seems like maybe you need a little bit of a break from the phone because the phone seemed to have caused you to forget to study or choose not to study. Right. So we may need to take a break from the phone. That's That's a situation where taking a break from the phone is, an, is a natural consequence. It's not a punishment, though. I think punishments should be just thrown out the window. I really just don't think they have any purpose because a punishment is kind of like an artificial thing that we're creating that has nothing to do with the situation because we're trying to put some suffering onto our child to teach them a lesson or something. Right. Natural consequences will teach them far better than we ever will. And the beautiful thing about that is that we can, when we issue a, con- a punishment, when we punish our child, we are seen as the enemy, the opponent, the policeman or woman, the police person. And so we're seen as, as an adversary to our child because we're bringing the suffering upon them where if we just allow the natural consequence to unfold and they're going to feel the painful effects of their choice, if it was not a good choice, we can stand beside them with empathy and compassion and support. 
And when they're exhausted sitting at the breakfast table because they stayed up too late on a school night, instead of punishing them, we can just sit beside them and say, oh, I understand. It is terrible when you stay up too late and you have to get up early. I remember doing that when I was a kid. It's painful. I, I have a feeling you'll probably go to bed a little earlier tonight. And then you, you're their, you're their uh, consultant. You're their ally. You're their friend. You're standing with them and you're supporting them through suffering the consequences of their choices as an ally. And then they don't see you as the enemy and the adversary and someone who's out to get them. And, you know, you're just constantly banging heads like that. You're just standing with them and offering support as they suffer through the natural consequences of what they chose to do or not do. Right. Yeah. That's great. What about for little kids? Um, you know, maybe four, three, four, and five. In terms of what? In terms of um, natural consequences, they, um, you know, they hit their brother, they um, threw something and it bounced off the wall um, or broke something. Um, what would be good natural consequences for that? Well, there's a couple of scenarios, right? So they hit their sibling. Well, a lot of times, the majority of the time, young children hit because they don't have, they don't know or they can't think of another way to express their frustration. Maybe they don't have a large enough vocabulary and they can't verbalize it. So it helps to, if the child is very young, two, three, four, I mean, four, they're starting to get a better vocabulary, but still it's not huge. There's still only four. So it helps to give them the vocabulary for what you think is happening, right? Your brother didn't share with you, and so you got angry and you hit him. Well, we don't hit in this house because, look, it hurt your brother. Now your brother's crying, and now you hurt him, and now you're angry and he's hurt. So, you know, you have to keep that at a level that's appropriate for their age so that they can understand what it is you're trying to teach them. But the natural consequence, when you, when you point out to a toddler who hit their sibling, look at your sibling now. I mean, if they hurt them, you have to tend to the hurt one first, but then you can go back to the one who did the hitting and you could say, look what happened to your brother. You hit him and then he cried or he has a mark on his arm now and his arm hurts. So what you're doing is you're showing them the consequences of their behavior, what they're lashing out did. And then you're also hopefully starting to build some compassion into them. They were angry. They didn't know any other way to deal with their frustration. And so they lashed out and hit. Now they see that their hitting hurt someone else. But then also you have to give them the language. Your brother wouldn't share with you. And so you got upset, you got mad and you hit him. That's not the right thing. We don't hit. Look what happened. So there are, there are a bunch of steps that have to go into helping a child who, a young child who has undesirable behavior. You know, our instinct as a parent might just be, oh, we don't hit. Go to your room. Go on timeout. But then you haven't, you haven't figured out why they hit. You haven't given them any tools or understanding or language to, to deal with the, the feelings they had that caused them to hit. 
And then you haven't helped them to understand why hitting wasn't a good choice. So there's so many pieces to that one little incident of hitting your sibling. You have to teach them. You have to give them language. You have to help them understand what was, what they were feeling inside and then how their actions affected their sibling. And I love that, that you turned the natural consequence into, wow, you know, your brother is hurt and, and, you know, and teaching that empathy and, you know, not that you want your child to feel bad, but when they hurt somebody, you know, that's, that is a natural consequence of, wow, my, my heart feels sad now that I, wow, I made him cry and I made a mark on him. Mm -hmm. So that's really beautiful. And then the other thing I think that's important is with all of this, well, Let's, let's use the example of timeout. A lot of parents of young kids ask me about timeout. Okay. And I used to use timeout with my now 18-year-old until I realized how off-base it really is. Mm-hmm. So if a kid is acting out and you put them on timeout, a young child I'm talking about, or you send them to their room uh, as a punishment or something, that really is very, very off base. So, because it has nothing to do with what they did. You're not giving them language for the feelings they had, giving them an alternative way to handle the situation, helping them to see how their behavior affected someone else. You've done none of that. You've just, in frustration, sent them away. Now you've disconnected them from you, the teacher, and they haven't learned anything about how to not do this the next time. So the, the classic idea of timeout, I totally disagree with and I discourage it across the board. However, there are times when your child is having such big emotions that it would be in the best interest of everyone if they perhaps went to their room to cool off a little bit. So that's not a, I'm sending you to your room to punish you. It's not that spirit. It's more of, you know what? There's too much going on down here right now and you're having some big emotions and I think it would be best for everyone if you go up to your room for a few minutes and pull yourself together. Now, maybe in their room, they want to cry and scream and hit their pillow and have a tantrum. Fine, if that's what gets it out. Maybe a lot of kids will go up there thinking that that's what they're going to do and then they see their Barbies on the floor and they start playing with them and then all that tension and just kind of dissolves out of them and they don't need some big tantrum. They just kind of, you know, come back to themselves. They have a few minutes of quiet. They pull themselves together and then they come back and join the rest of the family. A reset. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not so much, I don't disagree with having them go to their rooms, but I disagree with it being, uh, used as a punishment or a consequence because that does nothing to help them or to help them make a different choice in the future. Sure. Sure. Um, That was really great. I love um, what you said also about making sure that we give kids an alternative behavior, alternative to the behavior that, that they were doing and like, how else could you handle that? How else could you tackle that the next time? Mm-hmm. and giving them alternatives to to that behavior. 
Um, yeah, we didn't get too much into that, but that's definitely a part of it. You know, depending on their age, it's got to be very simple if they're two or three. Right. Yeah. But the older they get, the more detailed you can make that suggestion for them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to um tell parents about tackling behaviors and um, mindset or anything else that maybe um, you didn't get a chance to add? I think the one thing I would just leave parents with is that parenting is hard. Our kids don't come with a manual. There's so many situations that come up that could cause you to feel guilt and shame and to feel not good enough. And you look around and it seems like everybody else has this whole parenting thing down much better than you do. And what I would say is to be gentle with yourself. Mm -hmm. Treat yourself, talk to yourself the way you would talk to your best friend who was struggling. You know, you wouldn't beat them up if they were having a hard time or in a bad way or making a mistake. You would be gentle with them and understanding and supportive and loving and try to help them. And I think so many times parents just beat themselves up when they mess up. We all mess up. But if we beat ourselves up when we mess up, we're going to feel worse. And inevitably, we're going to take that terrible feeling back out on our kids, which is going to make us feel worse about everything and worse about ourselves. If we can just kind of be, give ourselves grace and compassion and say, okay, well, you botched that one up. Let's see how we can do that better next time. It's the same way we, we can be raising our kids. Let them help them to learn from their choices that aren't so good and we can do the same thing and then we're modeling something beautiful for them yeah yeah that's amazing thank you thank you for that that's that's such a good reminder nobody told me that the day after my child was born I would wake up with mom guilt and it was just like oh oh my like and it set in so quickly wow and it was like oh wait I should be doing a b and c and I'm I'm not and you know it just it comes so so early and so so profoundly and like people just don't talk about that so thank you yeah yeah Um, I think all moms need to especially moms need to just be gentle and loving with themselves we're doing the best we can absolutely absolutely so you have a free gift um for the people who are watching and can you tell us a little bit about that well it if when you go to the link, you will be able to download a copy of the iceberg that you can print out and hang in your kitchen or wherever you will see it frequently or all over the place. I know when I was first learning how to use it and figuring it out for myself that just a glance over there to see it hanging on the dry erase board was enough to snap me out of whatever, whatever behavior I was using that was undesirable. So it's really a powerful tool and I share it with all of my clients and anyone who will listen because I just think it's really that effective for parents. Yeah, that's great. Any tips on, uh, so we, we hang it. Any other tips on how to use it? I also have a video that comes along with it when you download the, the, the PDF of the iceberg itself that goes into more detail about it and how to use it and, how it's effective and all that kind of stuff. Okay, awesome. Well, um, thank you so much. I'm super excited for our um, viewers to be able to see that. 
Um, so thank you so much. I so appreciate your time and all of the wisdom that you've shared with us. And um, for everybody watching, thank you so much. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to let us know. And um, we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. That wraps up this episode of Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids. If you know anyone who could benefit from this episode or this podcast in general, please share it with them. Also, I always love hearing feedback from my listeners. I welcome you to send me an email to erin at erin-taylor.com if you have any comments or questions that come up for you in an episode. Our children are our future. Parenting them is the most sacred task we will ever be asked to do. It truly does take a village to raise a child. Let's help each other to raise our children to be who it is they are meant to be. If at any point you feel like you need a little extra help and support, reach out to me. I am here to help you.